0: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this webinar um, that we're running today on what the airline industry will look like in a post-COVID-19 world. I am Claire McFarland. I lead the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program at the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, and and I'd like to welcome you to this webinar event today. The airline industry is is particularly topical and um, has been affected in a big way by COVID-19. And so it's great to have this opportunity to have this discussion with one of our non-resident experts um, in relation to this. For those of you who don't know um, the United States Study Centre, we are a research institute based at the University of Sydney. We are dedicated to the rigorous analysis of American foreign policy, economics, innovation, politics and culture. And we analyse America to provide insight for Australian policymakers, businesses, scholars, students, and the general public. And as we get started today, you know, I'd just like to start by recognising the um, work of essential services workers and um, uh, and, and also um, policymakers who um, who have been uh, really. Putting, you know, really putting in a huge amount of work um, as they focus on uh, how industries are going to come through this particular crisis. So um, this particular event today, it's it's a webinar. It's um, Uh, We're going to have a presentation by by Justin Wasnage, who is a non-resident fellow with the Innovation Entrepreneurship Program at the US Study Centre. He's going to pick up on some of the themes of his brief on what the airline industry is going to look like post-COVID-19. Then Justin and I will have a bit of a conversation about the themes. Uh, Some of you have submitted questions, pre-submitted questions, um, as part of the registration, and so we'll um, go into some of those. And then we'll have some live uh, Q&A as well. So as things come up for you during Justin's presentation and our discussion, please go ahead and add questions through Zoom's Q&A and just recognise that I'll be reading them on the fly and so it'd be really ideal if they are pithy and questions rather than statements. Um, that would be really helpful um, from my perspective. So before I hand over to Justin, I'd like to introduce Justin. Um, he, Justin Wastnage has been a non-resident fellow at USSC For the last two years, he's published a couple of research pieces, which I happen to have handy here, on um, airports um, and the aviation industry in the US and the impact for Australia, particularly lessons around American airport cities um, and how the US encourages industry around airports, particularly in the context for us of Sydney's second airport. Currently, Justin is the CEO and founder of Vloggy, which is a video collaboration platform. And um, in a subsequent webinar, we might hear a bit more about that. But he's also an aviation and tourism policy consultant. Um, He's a former board member of Aviation Aerospace Australia, which is the peak body for aviation and aerospace industries. He's a former director of aviation policy at the Australian Industry Group, Tourism and Transport Forum. And prior to this, he worked for more than 10 years in aviation and travel journalism. So I can't really think of a more well-qualified expert to talk to us um, today about the implications for um, the aviation um, industry as we go through this particular crisis. So, Justin, I'm going to hand over to you, and um, and I look forward to the conversation
1: subsequently. Uh, thank you, thank you, Claire, and welcome everyone. Um, I can think of some other experts who are more qualified, but. Uh, um, I- what um, I've done in a lot of research and a lot of my background is looking at not only where we are today, but looking at what that could mean for the future. So there's a lot of documentation around the current impact on the air transport industry and on tourism and travel. Um, and um, I'll look at some of that in the presentation. But really, I want to have a, a thought about where we could go next. Um, and hopefully a lot of people watching are wondering. Uh, where this all leads to. So, um, with that in mind, I'm going to start um, sharing my screen. Um, so, so basically, as everybody on this call, I'm sure, will be aware, this is first and foremost a. Uh, a health emergency, and uh, as as Claire pointed out in, in her remarks, um, the first thought that everyone has must be to healthcare workers and to the health of the economy. But as we're starting to see, especially in Australia now, is the impact on the economy. So the health um, impact will run its course and different durations for different economies. But underpinning that um, is actually the the health of the economy and no part of the economy is probably more impacted um, than the aviation industry. In fact, it's, it's it's facing the most challenging period of its entire history. Um, if we look at the impact after 9-11, this, uh, airlines in the US were flying again within a week, um, and it had a gradual downturn that led to bankruptcies. However, this is a total shutdown of, um, of travel. So actually passenger volume is down 95% um, from where it was a year ago. And where that, impacts uh, revenue is down about 55 percent because there are still bailouts and i'll get to that later so really i want to have a look at um in this session how does it recover um, will the bailouts be enough to keep the airline industry to survive um, or will we see some more fundamental changes so it's a fairly brief uh, agenda um really looking at commercial air travel as the leading edge of um, the the impact of COVID-19, and then looking at um, air transport industry in the US, um, and how it may or may not already be teetering on the edge. But then the interesting stuff comes after that, is how how I think, and with some research backing up, how I think the air industry may respond, how government may respond, and then how airline customers uh, may respond. So first and foremost, let's not forget that this disease, this virus was spread due to air travel. Um, so just like the uh, erroneously named Spanish flu of uh, 1918 that was spread across the globe really by um, by returning troops and spread a disease much more quickly around the rest of the world than it ever did before, today it is air transport. So the original cases uh, in Wuhan, um, those people traveled to Singapore, then on to France, and then they traveled to, to Tehran. And it was this rapid interconnectivity, which is enabled by air transport, that obviously that has been one of the causes of this. Uh, we have another uh, brief coming out on cruising. Cruise ships have been linked to being incubators, but the rapid tra- tra- uh, transport enabled by air transport was really the, the key to this uh, pandemic, being a global pandemic so quickly. So what does this mean? well look at look at the air trunks look at the look at the passenger flows just for January, February, and March. What we saw is that in February uh, inbound flights to some Asian cities fell by about seventy five percent and looking at China, this was when all of the the cases first originated in China and then the same happened globally in March, and you can see actually tailing off and then by April, well, by April, one staggering statistic uh, in the u s is when you look at the number of passengers screened by the Transport Safety um, Agency. On just picking a day, on the 3rd of April, 2019, there was almost two and a half million passengers scanned. On the same day this year, 130,000. And you actually have a phenomenon in the US of ghost flights where in order to uh, preserve both their slots at airports, but also the connectivity and flying essential workers around. Um, you do have lots of flights in the US, but some of them are flying with as, many, as, as few as one person on board. Um, so it really is a skeleton network in the US. And um, and really very, very few people um, traveling because there's 95% of cities um, under lockdown. Now, but I'm figuring you all kind of know this. So look, again, looking at the figures, it's about 90% down. Um, for international flights and 63% down on, on uh, domestic. Now, the latest IATA forecast suggests that um, if flights resume back to normal in June, then 2020 will be 36% down on the year before. Now, that, that forecast was made um, a couple of weeks ago, and I think most people watching would probably assume that things aren't going to go back to normal in the US in June. So I think we can expect that figure to be a lot higher by the end of the year. Um, so what this means is really uh, aircraft are, are parked all across the United States and as they are um, the rest of the world. Um, and there are actually 10 airlines currently seeking um, part, parts of the federal bailout there. Um, and this has actually enabled um, about uh, three quarters of a million staff to attain on the payroll of these airlines. So it is As it is here a sort of suspended animation currently uh in the us we might we might talk about the particular situation here um in the q a but there is this sense in in the u.s at least that this is a a temporary crisis that actually will somehow be resolved but and sorry the the second point this is that it's already having a knock-on effect on aerospace. And why this is important is because the aerospace industry normally lags about three to six months behind air transport in terms of orders. So as airlines cancel orders, because they can see that they're not going to grow into the future, then this has an impact on, on, um, on the aerospace industry. So th- the companies that make the aircraft, which uh, airlines fly. So Boeing um, has already shut its production lines until further notice. Now, part of this was because they were in their big assembly line, their final assembly line, is in Washington State, which was one of the first states which was uh, affected. But now it's looking at forward orders and the backlog that these the the two global um, giants of of air framing, Airbus and Boeing have have virtually vanished. Um, but even looking at the smaller, the regional carriers, so um, Bombardier Bombardier Q400s, which are people know as the Dash eights that fly around Australia and DCH, so they've been suspended as well. They've, they're now no longer manufactured there. They're manufactured by a, a third party um, manufacturer. So you're seeing this knock on effect, which is really a harbinger for how the industry thinks the rest of the, uh, well, the first two or three years of this decade will play out. So what next? Well, really the questions, the unknowns here, and this is a fast moving, uh, topic and even I was saying earlier to Claire I mean between writing the paper that you can download on this and now so much has changed this is a very fast moving um, topic but really the question is where will it be safe to fly and when so how airlines may respond there's a a few things we can assume but social distancing as a concept won't go away it won't be that to suddenly we' we 're allowed within one and a half meters or two meters of each other, so there are some things that airlines are looking at, such as no middle seats or premium economy, or even reconfiguring seats in budget airlines, uh, which is a massive change to the business model there of, of how of the seat pitch minimum seat pitch and minimum seat width um, now, if these kind of things are mandated over the long term, then this, this takes out a whole um, budget airline sector but there are some bright spots in the economy you you would have seen that um, news for example from Air New Zealand um, is going to start flights from Auckland to Shanghai cargo only and there are lots of that and um, in Australia the the federal government has actually put money into to support cargo flights and um, in the US we've seen things similar so the essential um, air services routes which um, as a form of subsidy are being used to ensure that cargo flows freely and I think this is an interesting thing because for years it has been, um, cargo has been used to underpin passenger flights but we may even see a reversal and see uh, passenger, num- passengers just underpinning effectively cargo routes and this has some knock-on effect for the cost of cargo, air cargo relative to, to shipping but this is a lifeline that airlines may use. But really, one of the the main things that you're going to see from airlines is is, uh, the complete loss of thin routes. And by thin routes, what we mean is there was a a, a tendency um, in the early 2000s and into the 10s to join city pairs that weren't formally used. So the old model was hub and spoke. So you had major hub airports. So Singapore and Bangkok and uh, Dubai and stuff and you had lots of feeder flights and then feeder flights going out and then a new model came in that said well actually why don't we link secondary cities together and we had a whole breed of aircraft the 787 and A350 designed especially for that now the route economics of those just don't work in the in the post-COVID world because there will be a dramatically reduced number of of travelers which means that the it's the hub airports that actually will gain again and if you're travelling from i'm going to pick two you know adelaide to uh i don't want to pick it specifically actually but 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 suffice to say that secondary cities will lose a lot of their direct air services and going back through hubs will be a phenomenon now how governments will respond well uh, IATA used to complain that um, in Australia, where there was 14 different checkpoints on an international journey, um, Australia being one of the highest in the world by the time you have security and passport control and biosecurity and this and that, um, 14 was too many. But I think we're going to see um, 15 or 16, because there will be a lot of uh, health checks embedded into that um, departure and the rival's journey. Um, This may mean reconfiguring of of arrivals halls, and this may mean uh, reconfiguring of departure halls. But whatever it is, there will be heat monitors and and some of that um, apparatus for anyone who is allowed to fly. Um, And I think we're gonna see um, really greater state intervention, which we're already seeing um, at the moment through subsidies. So we're already seeing lots of governments around the world respond to this crisis with direct stimulation of the market basically support packages but what we're going to see later on is is we're going to go back my prediction is to greater state ownership you'll see even some of the airlines in the us that are receiving some of the bailout package in their bailout package is actually written that if if the debt goes above a certain amount that gets converted into equity And that's in the U.S., whereas the global aviation system is unique in that it doesn't really allow mergers over states, over national uh, boundaries. And this gives governments an incentive to actually prop up their flag carrier if they have one, uh, which most countries still do, because they need to keep that connectivity going. So there will be a lot of that in the second half of the year, a lot of government intervention, either through subsidy or through direct intervention. But then there will be stimulus. So once people are allowed to fly again, and I'll get to where they may fly in a second, but once they are able to fly, then things like departure taxes and visa fees, which are barriers to, uh, to people flying, um, they will be waived because if you're competing with a very small pool of people who can travel, then you'll do anything as a government to get those people to come to you rather than go elsewhere. But how travelers may respond is 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 probably the the key thing and the 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 last point here domestic travel will come first then then travel between covid free states this is probably the the thing that's shaping now so um they're probably once australia once the australian states are satisfied that that the virus is under control, say even between Western Australia and South Australia, that those two governments may permit flights between those two. And then that will open up. And then has as already, already been flagged across the Tasman, there may be reciprocity. So it may be that Australian and New Zealanders or, or citizens of those countries or residents of those countries are allowed to fly between those two. And it may be that somewhere like Taiwan, which has ma- managed to effectively eliminate the, the virus, may be allowed to, to travel. So you'll, you, you won't get this entire network opening up. And unfortunately, uh, my prediction is that the US will be a long way down this. So we're, we'll start to see areas of the world where, where COVID has been eliminated or been under control, allowing travel between. And you may need some certificate. Or, but even before a virus is, is enabled, New Zealanders may trust Australia enough to say that they, Australia hasn't let anyone in, so they will allow travel. So that'll be the, the main um, prediction. But then there's some other things in there as well. So corporates are actually now looking at their, risk, at their health insurance and saying, well, we actually, as a duty of care, cannot allow our staff to travel to such certain, certain countries. This is an extension of the current health insurance, but it will effectively ban business travel for longer than leisure travel, which is a, a major thing to think about. Um, but the biggest prediction, I guess, is is probably that, as I said earlier, around the, the seating configuration, budget carriers with very high density of, of passengers probably won't be allowed to, to fly initially, just because of, of um, social distancing on board. So those are the real sort of um, predictions. Um, and now, and this is um, talking about the aviation industry and talking about the, the Dreamliners, um, open for questions. So, I will um, hand back to, to Claire now, who's got some questions.
0: Thanks, Justin. Um, and so, uh, I have a couple of um, questions, I, I guess, to start with. And, and one of those was um, is, is around the the air industry impact. So, um, you talked a little bit about the CARES Act um, and the fact that, in the US, the fact that uh, 10 um, US airlines, um, I think it includes some of the big ones, have indicated that they're going to take funds through that package. But one of the things that I think is quite interesting, um, and you, you referred to it a little bit of, um, uh, uh, in the US, is the um, bankruptcy provisions that um, that exist and, and the difference um, uh, in that system to the Australian system. Um, there's a number uh, sorry, um, previous airline shocks have resulted in a number of US airlines going into bankruptcy and, um, and then coming out of that and continuing to trade. So um, what do you think, I mean, what has, what has that looked like for those airlines um, through those kind of shocks in the past? What, what are some of the implications of that? How do airlines come out of that kind of a shock like this or the process of bankruptcy? Um, and what looks different about them?
1: Yeah. Um, thanks, Claire. So, look, I think that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I showed the pictures of the, of the parked aircraft. Um, it really is a state of suspended animation. Um, and the first part of that is is the CARES Act, which is the essentially the, the payroll protection um, part of that. And through that, the the federal government there is saying, well, we will support you to pay, like like the JobKeeper uh, provisions here to pay your to pay your salaries. The difference being in, in the US actually, is that um, any company over hundred million uh, in payroll has to give equity back to the government um, in return, which is what I was saying the, so the federal government will o- end up owning some of these airlines it, it bails out or parts of. But the interesting thing about the chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. So again, after, after 9-11, which was the, the biggest shock before this, we saw carriers go into bankruptcy protection. And that actually allows the companies to actually restructure their, their operations and do a lot of stuff that you would have to do in, in most other jurisdictions in bankruptcy administration, but you're using your own board and your own internal staff to do it rather than uh, externally appointed administrators. And so what we saw after that was, was a, we did see some mergers acquisitions, which were negotiated behind closed doors rather than, uh, in the administration process here, you tend to have it played out in public and venture capital firms come in and, and, and propose packages. Not, not, in, not in public, sorry, but it is more public than the mm. equivalent uh, in the US. And l- look, we saw um, by about 2003, the airline industry in the US come back much leaner and fitter, um, having, having shed lots of unprofitable routes, having shed... Lots of uh, staff, um, but also having retired um, lots of aging aircraft out of their out of their fleet. and that is a provision in the US, which will because it doesn't ha- because the US doesn't have a national carrier or hasn't had a national carrier since Pan Am in the in the seventies. The US government isn't in a position to pick favorites, as mm. most other national governments are. Mm. Yeah.
0: Okay. One of the things that's interesting, I think, in relation to that, you, t- you talked about the fact that the, um, that, it cr- that it forced um, uh, companies to, I guess, to innovate to a certain extent, to be thinking about wh- what was the right structure for them, what were the right routes for them. Um, you know, one of the things that you've talked about in some of the previous reports is, um, is that right from the very start, the aviation industry has been a very innovative industry. And, um, you know, and that's that has has continued through the through the history um, of aviation, particularly in the US business models um, uh, and uh, and adjacencies and, and moving to those kind of things. What are some of the innovations that you can see come coming out of this as possibilities?
1: Uh, well, it, it depends how far you want to go. But um, one of the interesting things about the the order book at Boeing is that suddenly. An aircraft called the seven three seven combo um, is suddenly suddenly orders are being converted to that and what that is is a is a seven three seven so a narrow body aircraft where it has a uh, essentially a bulkhead so a pressurized container at the back for for cargo for um, containerized cargo so actually you could see um, aircraft go from sort of 170 passengers down to 70 with the rest filled with cargo. If that is a interim model, um, that helps routes to survive. Um, that's the kind of innovation. I mean, previously, some of the innovation we've, we've seen, um, is around the placement of, of airports and, and the, the, the ecosystem around that where the U S has really led um, the world in, in creating, uh, logistics hubs around airports to, to underpin um, passenger travel with cargo. But we've also seen, of course, of course, the deregulation in the late 70s and early 80s in the US led to budget carriers as we as we know them today. So no-frills carriers, mm. internet sales, and, and so forth. Um, and that really spurred also on the, the kind of innovation in the aerospace industry, because it was the budget carriers saying, well, we don't want to have three pilots. We don't want to have a pilot, co-pilot, and an engineer. So they were pushing the, the, the airframers to actually um, upgrade the, the cockpit avionics in order to only have two passengers, two, two pilots. And similar innovations around seats and emergency exits mm-hmm. and so forth have enabled budget carriers to reduce the number of um, staff on board. So it's things like that. It's, it's around um, engine, engine innovation, again, to reduce fuel burn, not because of any environmental concern that came later, but because of mm-hmm. cost concerns. Um, we've seen the the innovation really, um, which was led actually in, in Europe, more around composite aircraft, around plastic, lightweight aircraft. Again, this is all designed to deliver cost savings to to airlines. And at a time now when 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 routes will be much thinner, I think one of the the things we'll see is is um, regional jets, which are sort of sub 100 seat aircraft, will suddenly come to their to the fore yeah. because you will have much smaller numbers of people traveling and you'll need smaller aircraft. So if you're going to, if you were going to invest in one area of aerospace at the moment, it would be regional jets.
0: Yep. It's interesting. One of the, um, one of the startups that I heard from the last time that I was in, in the U S in San Francisco, you know, in in only the way that you can have a San Francisco company um, was a um, a startup that was looking at business class only planes for that leg from San Francisco to um, London, and that was their whole kind of that was their whole kind of reason for being um, that kind of pr- really premium level of um, of travel. And it's, I've been thinking about them through this recently, kind of going, you know, there's a lot more space in that kind of environment, um, and the, there's a premium associated with it, but. Um, you know, wealthy people I expect are going to, you know, uh, will be happy to pay for that kind of safety of peace of mind.
1: Yeah. Well, exactly. Actually, it's not a, not a new idea. I actually flew from Düsseldorf to New York um, on uh, one of those services probably 20 years ago. Um, but, yes, that idea and, and similarly Singapore Airlines used to fly business class only from Singapore to New York. Um, mm-hmm. Same sort of thing, yes. Yeah. So, actually, there will be a premium there probably will be a market now for both premium business class travel, fewer people, fewer seats, but longer range. Um, yes, but also uh, private private jets. I mean, mm. the, the, the seriously wealthy, um, in the U S and to lesser extent in Europe and to minuscule amounts in Australia, um, fly um, privately. So they don't have to share their cabin with, with anyone. Now mm. these aircraft are normally rented by the hour. So, there are some cleaning implications in terms of the changeover of passengers, but you're not sharing with the the, um, the Great Unwashed or the <laughs> you're not sharing with the general public. So, yes, that's another area which I, I see uh, booming is, is is private aviation, so, so business jets.
0: Yeah, yeah, OK. What about, you know, one of the things you talked about was the ag- aggressive use of subsidies um, and incentives. The US, much more than Australia, um, at a state level, um, has has a history of, of, um, um, of using incentives to, to both attract companies and, and to keep them. Um, how do you think that this, this mechanism might be used uh, post-COVID-19? You talked a little bit about subsidies. Um, are there any indicators um, of the kinds of conditions that you think states would be likely to be looking for in relation to this? We've seen a bit of this in Australia as well, um, if the newspapers are be believed um, in relation to Virgin. But what do you think that, what do you, the US has a stronger history of this. What do you think that's going to look like?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, thanks. So, so I mean, there, there's two parts of that. There's there's route subsidies, um, and in the US, it's the uh, essential air services subsidy, which was introduced in the 70s as, as aviation was deregulated. There was a need to link certain, you know, capital cities with, with major economic hubs. Um, so there was a mechanism passed um, through the federal government to essentially subsidize each seat um, on a certain route. Um, now, this, the essential air services is often maligned um, because it's seen as a gerrymandering or vote buying. or um, There are lots of examples of, of very convenient, politically, uh, subsidies given um, to key congressmen. Um, However, that being said, that mechanism is in place, um, and that is definitely a a way to guarantee, as the name suggests, essential air services, keep flying. So that's already in place and will continue to exist. There are parallels in Australia. So the federal government has a remote uh, air services uh, subsidy, really for the Northern Territory and and for parts of the country, which are otherwise inaccessible. But then individual states, the New South Wales, Queensland, WA um, also have systems to subsidise key routes, um, so those those will continue to exist. But then the other thing that that you're referring to is is the um, the, the, the cherry picking of large airlines and large aerospace manufacturers through state government subsidy and mm-hmm. sometimes city government subsidy. Um, so yes, I mean Chicago grew into being the world's busiest um, hub. At one stage, because the mayor of Chicago wanted it to be. So he basically managed to convince the Illinois governor, and they basically bought uh, United Airlines headquarters and placed it or hub and placed it in Chicago into this brand new airport they'd built. Um, and I think that's the closest parallel to, to what you're referring to with, uh, with Virgin here is that Virgin is, is very um, proudly supported by the Queensland government um but new south wales is suddenly eyeing an opportunity um so regardless of what the federal government does there's now this this uh this competitive tension i suppose you may say between queensland and new south wales i think queensland yesterday said that they would uh get the bazookas out if new south wales tried to buy virgin from them that was probably undiplomatic language but yes in the u.s this is is very very uh, advanced and in fact there are trillions and trillions of dollars spent every year by state governments essentially buying the corporate headquarters of not just airlines but Amazon there was a bidding war to who could who could host the second warehouse for Amazon
0: yeah and um for the audience if you're interested in understanding a little bit more about what that looks like both of Justin's previous reports cover some of the details around that, including um, freight and logistics, and the um, the measures that um, that U.S. states and uh, and cities have taken to attract and retain um, uh, airlines and and uh, logistics centers. So I would commend them to you um, as a way of giving them a bit of a plug as well. Um, you know, the third thing, Justin, that you talked about in terms of the impact was around was around customers. Um, Now, one of the things that we're already seeing is quite a significant amount of flexibility around rebooking of cancelled flights um, from a number of airlines. Um, The US has the busiest airports in the world by both passenger numbers and by freight. They have six of the top 20, um, as you've covered previously, and um, which is more than any other country. So so this is a nation of people who fly, they're used to flying, they like flying. what do you what do you um, what do you see as the as what customers are going to be looking for in this post COVID nineteen world? Um, are they going to be looking for what do you think will encourage them back into the air? Will it take a lot or will it be something that'll be you know quite straightforward? Do you think once we've passed this?
1: Um, well, I mean, look, we. Um... We're speaking on, on Zoom now, um, and I think everybody in business, um, if they hadn't used video conferencing or hadn't used it much, a month ago, are now very familiar with them. I mean, I'm worried now about how my virtual background is not quite working, which is, isn't something which I thought about um, a few, few weeks ago. <laughs> but you know and you look at um, q and a last night and and it's now looking very click and the point is is that and we have upgraded we've upgraded our broadband here and suddenly everybody is actually set up for home working so actually the the other part of this component is that yes a lot of people fly for business but this this has actually forced people to realize that they probably don't need to quite as much and that's a big threat for the airline industry because yes there will be some people who will jump back on a plane tomorrow because they were just so used to it and they hate being at home with the kids and they just want to get back in the air. But with any, in any market, there will be early adopters and there will be people who need more comfort and, and security. For those people, and there's a question actually in the Q&A about um, if two countries are COVID free, would it really be necessary to reconfigure seating? And I think that there's, there's the, the medical response. Is it really required versus the, 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 the customer expectation? So, do you would you feel comfortable sitting uh, with a seat pitch so only so deep, you know, 107 centimeters, and, and a width of of uh, 53 centimeters? Yep. Some people will, some people won't. So it's a market adjustment as much as a health um, care adjustment. And even then, I think you've also got to look at um, the effect on people's income. So the JobKeeper allowance is for some people a boon but for a lot of people it's a reduction in salary um, and then what happens when that ends and people aren't probably going to want to go on a leisure trip until they're certain about their income so there's there's a whole lot of factors here about about what travelers intent will be yep
0: okay. so um i want to move on uh, to some of the um, questions that people submitted um, as they registered, because there was, there was a couple of really interesting ones, ones that we haven't covered um, as the conversation has gone through. One of the things we haven't really spoken about so much so far um, in this conversation is, um, is a question that's been put by Belinda Gibson about how airline changes are going to affect airport business models.
1: Yeah. um, Look, a a lot of airports around the world, uh, especially starting in the US and then into Europe and then the rest of the world, have actually built dedicated budget terminals, or they've reconfigured uh, terminals to specifically accommodate um, hordes of people um, traveling um, at low prices. And these, unfortunately, are the are the sort of areas which are going to be most keenly affected by any uh, presuming that social distancing will go on for a, a year or so as they suggest and it becomes part of everyday life the, the kind of processes and flows even through security handling and all that kind of stuff will have to be re reimagined but also if the budget carriers do not survive in as great numbers and uh, there was one uh, so the center for asia pacific aviation suggested that of the 800 airlines flying internationally, there may only be 50 left next year. Now, I think that's probably overstating it because of the protections in the um, Chicago Convention around national carriers. But even so, there will be a lot of airlines at the end of this year that, that do not exist. And so this has a massive impact for, for airports who have, who have hinged their growth plans on, on budget budget carriers. As I said, I mean, I think cargo could be a, could be a short term fix so that is a reconfiguration of the tarmac and the and the processing areas but yeah essentially it's, it's uh, some of the work that's been done in in airports like brisbane to have a lot of space and a lot of free flow and brisbane's blessed with having a huge amount of space and melbourne as well um, but if you look at the us that situation isn't replicated really there are there aren't many airports in the us apart from maybe atlanta that have vast areas of space to allow for social distancing
0: yeah, yeah. Um, one of the other areas that we haven't um, spoken about um, up until this point, um, although you touched on it in this, um, in the uh, when we were talking about Boeing and the um, the the wide reports about the cancellations of orders um, through to Boeing. What Peter Hayes has asked this question about what you think the impact will be on the U.S. aerospace manufacturing sector. It's a really big sector. Um, as part of the US economy, and and, um, there's also a question about the supply chains essential to aviation um, that's come through from from Jed Horner. Um, What what, what do you think the future holds for those?
1: Um, Yeah, well, um, actually just looking at Peter's question as well, um, he's talking about component repair, and one thing I think that we will see uh, shortly, like in maybe next month, is a sudden rush to do D-checks and C-checks. So some essential maintenance of aircraft that and people are bringing them forward um, during this period of, of hibernation and getting it done whilst they're still being um, government supported. So actually there probably will be a, a boom in, in maintenance and repair and overhaul uh, in the next couple of months. Um, but you're right. The question about um, aerospace supply chains is much more nuanced because um, they all rely on backlogs and and whether they're building um, uh, vertical uh, stabilisers or, or or leading edge uh, composites or even bolts and, and cabling um, looms, they all rely on the prime, so the Boeing or Airbus or Bombardier or Embraer, um, having enough orders. Now, like I said earlier, I think there will be some uptick for... Um, uh, for regional jets and for smaller aircraft, um, and at the other end of the thing, there still will be large super jumbos flying. Whether any many more built, so I think there will be a. If I were a um, supply chain, um, if I were supplying the aerospace business, I'd be talking to regional jet manufacturers first, um, because if if there's anywhere that's going to have some orders, it's going to be there, because. Really, all these airlines that are going to go bankrupt, there's going to be a glut of supply of, of um, narrow bodies in the market. Um, but there's still an undersupply of, um, of regional jets.
0: What about the? Um, um, do you think it provides an opportunity for Australian manufacturing? Um, or do you think that the opportunities will be taken up by um, the manufacturing supply chains that, are, that already exist?
1: yeah look unfortunately um, Australia is a is a fifth tier aerospace supplier um, so tier one being the primes and then tier two being the people who make the complex bits so entire wings and um, uh, vertical stabilizers and and tail fins and, yeah and engines um, are sort of tier two and then subcontracts to that and unfortunately Australia is really quite a low level supplier so actually And added to that, the difficulties of of air freight logistics um, mean that that you've got to probably say that the primes would probably look after their immediate tier one and tier two suppliers ahead of further down the chain, sort of tier four, tier five. So no, it doesn't look very optimistic, uh, except if the Australian government wanted to ensure there was local manufacturing, which is a different political issue around. Uh, And that actually probably the the question earlier about uh, MRO, we may even see some maintenance repair and overhaul brought back on on shore through government policy, because suddenly governments are worried about exposure to China or exposure to to global trade um, networks.
0: Yeah, what about the um... There was a question, there was a couple of questions, pre-questions submitted around um, tourism uh, and the context of it being one of Australia's biggest industries and being hit very hard by COVID-19. What? So David Moore Foster's interested in what the implications are for Australia's trade and tourism if other governments exercise greater control of airlines and um, Miraj Huda had asked should airlines pivot their marketing and advertising efforts um, as we go as we go through this and what do you think that, that might look
1: like well it's difficult to pivot um, if your business based on transporting large volumes of people um, around the world when transporting people around the world is no longer allowed so you're like I said I mean the pivot one pivot could be towards cargo, um, which is... And you can find new business models to actually do that more effic- effectively and essentially take um, shipping out um, at that price point. But that's probably a short-term thing because because shipping will always... Well, you'd imagine it would always be cheaper than, than air freight. Um, and there probably are, like you said, some business model around business class only flights and things like that. There are some of those innovations because those are things which have been experimented on before and, and, and could work again. Um, but in terms of the marketing pivot, those are probably the two that would I could see probably working. Um, and what was the second part of your question, or well, the first part?
0: Oh, about the marketing and advertising strategies. And and actually, Julia um, Horn has picked up on this a little bit, um, asking around whether the logic around the airline credits for flights cancelled um, is a combination of both retaining liquidity and forcing us back into the air so that we relearn the habit of flying. Um,
1: yeah, um, I mean it's, it's an impossible situation if you're an airline because. You obviously want forward bookings, um, but by consumer protection rules, you have to pass on, uh, really. Um, if you don't know when you're going to be able to fly again, then you cannot, in good faith, probably rebook those, those flights. And then you can give credits. Um, but who knows when those credits will be, will be worth anything. So, for example, I had credits with uh, the Brazilian airline. Um, what was it called? I can't remember. Anyway, Varig, Varig, and lost loss of those because it went bankrupt in the meantime. Um, and I think people would be wary um, given the uncertainty of having um, such credits. But that's, that's more of a consumer protection thing as well. Um, yeah. Rather than, but it is, I mean, the airlines should, because they're looking after their shareholders, ensure liquidity um, and yeah. minimize the of money going out.
0: Yeah, and I guess kind of related to that, and there was a lot of discussion um, about this on Twitter last night when I dipped in to check on something um, around frequent flyer points and loyalty programs, and what that what the impact is on those kind of loyalty mechanisms that are designed to, um, you know, encourage us encourage our loyalty to particular airlines. What what's the impact of this situation on those types of uh, pro, those types of programs?
1: Well, expect some very uh, generous offers. So in the US, as here, um, every, anybody's status has been rolled over for, for a year. Um, so um, if you were gold and didn't fly much, you'll still continue to be gold. Uh, and I think there will actually be some marketing around that. So we'll, there will be um, special promotions out to um, loyal members because they are the people who are most likely to, uh, to fly again and people who are very habitually uh, mm-hmm. flying. Um, so it makes sense to to focus your marketing on those people. Talk about social distancing and hygiene on planes and in in the lounges and so forth. And concentrate on that group first, and maybe even offer them business class only flights. So, yes, I mean, that's that's. I mean, as with any business, you always focus on um, your most loyal customers um, for repeat. And they, the reason those people flew so much in the first place was because they had the greatest need to fly and the greatest. Uh, ability to to purchase flights, and that won't go away.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the yeah, um, and one of the other questions that that um, has come up, and it kind of harks back to some of the conversation we we're having around innovation earlier um, from Jim Orchard, is is about whether this level of disruption is enough to push us forward to transition to battery-powered aircraft or autonomous aircraft? Or do you think that this pushes that further out?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I I think, I mean, today's price of oil um, news is interesting. So if you have somewhere to store oil, you can actually get it for free. So the price of oil is apparently negative, which means that people will pay you to take barrels of oil if you have somewhere to store them, like the Chinese do. Um, and other countries as well. I mean, other countries are stockpiling oil. Um, but that aside, the cost pressures that um, that uh, fuel places on the on airline will exacerbate when margins are thinner. So I would imagine, unfortunately, there'll be some pushback from the industry to actually say, well, that's a very nice thing to, air pollution is a very nice thing to think about normally, but to push all those goals Back um, five years because we're struggling. However, um, there appears to be increasing research linking um, not the causation but the correlation um, between air pollution and greater uh, mortality rates in COVID 19. So, if you look at um, Wuhan, Wuhan sits um, you know, in a valley um, and has high nitrous oxides um, and par- uh, particulates, which they think may have been. Um, Led to greater lung damage in in the, the population there. The same is true of northern Italy in those bowls. Same is true in the UK. Mm-hmm. Same is true in New York. Um, and if you look at where the major outbreaks are, t- are taken place, actually there's a correlation between high uh, nitrous oxide. Um, and so, actually, um, even though a lot of people talk about um, CO2 emission emissions, nitrous oxides are. A particular problem for aircraft, a particular problem um, that they have when they are in in valleys. Now, in Europe, a lot of this has been addressed with the mandatory use of ground power, uh, which means that aircraft aren't actually idling and using their auxiliary power to to power lights and stuff when they're sitting in the airport. That's one thing, but I would imagine that that one, if it's proved, that one could be something that is looked at more seriously because people don't want to. Mm-hmm have that, so that's ground pollution rather than upper atmosphere pollution. I think upper atmosphere pollution, airlines may push it further, put, kick it a little bit into the long grass, but this, this nitrous oxides question might be one that, to watch.
0: Yep, yeah. Um, the, uh, another question, um, which I think, um, so, so um, just so that everybody's clear, we, we, we at US Study Centre, our focus is on the, um, the international um, context as opposed to the um, the situation with the Australian Government and Virgin. So um, I'm not ignoring these questions, it's, it's more that it's not really our, um, our context, we're looking at the lessons from the US um, for Australia. I-
1: Forgive and me. I do see a question there from, from Doug Nancaro. So I'll say, hi, Doug. Um, <laughs> catch up with you soon. But yeah, as, as Claire says, we're, we're mainly looking at the, the US rather than the specifics of the, of the Virgin deal.
0: Yeah. Um, but, but there's an interesting question around the... Um, and it, it's kind of related to some of the conversation we were having earlier around the, um, the impact on airports and ground stuff. Um, but Jim Morchard makes a, a good point and, and a question around... Um, stricter regulation on aircraft cleanliness and cleaning regimes—that um, you would expect that would be a feature. But what will that do in terms of turnaround times, and will that have a will have will that have a flow-on impact in terms of the way in which slots are um, provided to, to airlines? And that, are, are we looking at some of those kind of fundamental changes. Do you think?
1: Yeah, I don't think slot constraints will be an, an issue over the next two years. <laughs> no. Um, but the turnaround times, I mean, this goes back to the, to the question about budget airlines. So um, budget airlines work on the, on the, you know, obviously the more costs they can get out of their, um, out of their operation, the, the cheaper they can sell tickets for and the more people they can fly. And part of this has been an aim to get four, um, four rotations a day. So four um, return journeys. Um, and this is only really possible by by very quick um, cleaning uh, and then very quick, quick boarding. So the quick boarding can be done through uh, the lottery system of you, you pay for express boarding or only boarding seats, this and this, and um, to encourage quick boarding. But the cleaning, yes, I mean, they actually get, at the moment, many budget carriers use their cabin crew to also do the cleaning. So a difference really between full service carriers and budget, full service carriers contract cleaners. Um, and they would just be tasked to disinfect, whatever is required by health authorities. Whereas, entrusting that to to cabin crew um, may be more problematic if there is any particular cleaning or hard services that needs to be done. I mean, again, going back to the earlier remarks, earliest remarks. This is first and foremost a health um, emergency. Mm-hmm. Once we know what the ongoing restrictions will be around cleanliness and social distancing, these questions will be um, easy to answer. They're not very easy to answer at the moment, but yes, I imagine it would probably have a knock-on effect on turnaround times. Yeah.
0: Um, Now, I'm gonna be slightly cheeky um, in relation to the last question um, that's been asked by Dashana um, uh, Parek, which is about how you see uh, travel Retail, duty free industries adapting given airlines carry um, g- given the kind of airline context, and I'm going to ask you, Dashana, to uh, to come back to a future webinar that we uh, will be having. This is the first in a series of um, research pieces that we are doing, looking at um, the industries that are affected in a really big way by um, uh, by COVID nineteen. So so. Um, the airline industry is the first industry Justin's been looking at. Um, he's also taking a look at the cruise industries and um, we'll have some research coming out um, next week, I think, might be later this week. Um, and then t- tourism more generally is, is the third piece that, that Justin's going to be taking a look at um, and the impact um, on that. And so this is really the first of a series of research that we've got going. So um, please uh, come back. At Dashana and uh, we can have a discussion about the uh, adjacencies um, uh, in a su- at a subsequent time uh, and so i'd just like to take this opportunity really to thank everybody for participating today we 've had a really great turnout um, we 've had some really fantastic questions and um, and I hope it 's been a useful conversation um, for informing your your thinking about what 's happening in this uh, I'd really like to thank Justin for um, for taking part in this, for doing this research and for bringing his expertise to us. Look out for his um, forthcoming research. If you want to um, have a look at his um, previous research, um, please also do so. There's a couple uh, American Airport Cities lessons, Western Sydney Airport and bringing industry to um, airports, how the US experience can help Western Sydney take off. That's previous research um, and it'll be um, will be backwards, you guys, as I hold it up. But that those are really great research reports that have come out of the Innovation Entrepreneurship Program um, at the U.S. Studies Centre that Justin has authored. Um, uh, and there's a lot of relevance um, in them for, for this current situation because a lot of them is looking at the historical context um, and how, how the U.S. has become the kind of aviation powerhouse that it is and um, remains to be seen exactly what's going to happen next. But, Justin, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that, your insights, your expertise. Um, this session has been recorded, and so if you have colleagues that have missed it and would like to um, take a look at it, or if you'd like to revisit it, then please um, please let them know. Go ahead and do that. And um, and it will shortly be available on the USSC website, along with um, with our research. And finally, Um, If you just cannot get enough of what's happening in the United States, then please sign up for our weekly newsletter, the 45th. There is a huge amount going on at the moment in the US um, with implications for Australia from from health implications through to economic and industry implications through to um, grey zone, military, Indo-Pacific implications for for Australia out of COVID-19. And I'd commend that research to you and thank you all for being part of the webinar today. And, um, thank you. Hopefully we'll see you again soon. Thank you very much, Justin.
1: Thank you.